familiar? If your baby is going through another bout of bad diaper rash, then you need to give Dr. Mom Butt Balm a try. It was created by a mom who's also a doctor. When my kids were little, I remember using this thick, goopy cream to help soothe their sensitive skin. Ugh, it was so difficult to wipe off. Not with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. You only need a small amount, and it's really easy to apply and remove. It's also free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Look for it on Amazon and Walmart.com. Having a baby is a big deal, and there are so many different choices to make. And to make those educated choices, we need information about our options. You may have heard of the term evidence-based information, but what exactly does that mean? And how does it differ from other kinds of information out there? We're the Boob Group. I use a breast pump. I hand express milk for my baby. I exclusively breastfeed. I use a nipple shield. I breastfed after a C-section. I use a milk bank. I breastfeed in public whenever I feel like it. I pump at work. I breastfeed with a cover. I breastfeed twins. I give my baby bottles. I made my own supplemental nursing system. I supplement with formula. I talk to my baby while I breastfeed. I'm breastfeeding as a survivor of sexual abuse. When I have extra milk, I share it with other mom we are equal we are the boob group welcome to the boob group we're here to support all moms who want to give their babies breast milk and to respect the choices of moms who want to feed their babies in other ways i'm sunny galt how do you listen to the boob group as you may know our show is available on a bunch of different platforms including itunes stitcher spreaker tune in google play music i'm sure there's much more out there i'm not even aware of we also have the boob group app which is a free app that you can access all of our episodes through and we have the new mommy media network app so new mommy media is our parent company and this is a network app so if you like to listen to a bunch of different parenting podcasts and you don't want to have to download all the individual apps all you have to do is download our network app and you'll get all those same great episodes and what's really nice about it is it's then at your fingertips so wherever you're going you're out pushing the stroller you're waiting for you know an appointment or whatever it happens to be you just have one app for everything so it's really helpful and you can download them wherever you get apps so let's meet the mamas that are joining our conversation today ladies tell us a little bit about yourself and your family graham let's start with you Hi, my name is Graham, and I blog over at uh, postpartofmama.org about all things kid-related and parenting-related, but with a focus on maternal mental illnesses. I have a three-year-old little boy and a seven-month-old little girl. My son was breastfed and pumped and formula-fed, and my daughter so far has been exclusively breastfed. So I am really, really tired. All <laughs> I think we can all relate to that, right? <laughs> all right? Especially Alicia. So Alicia just had her baby a couple weeks ago. It's her first baby. So Alicia, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello. Yes, my name is Alicia and I have a two and a half week old uh, little girl. Her name is Cadence. And if you hear any sounds, that's going to be her. Uh, so just welcome her along with everything, I guess. And yeah, uh, uh, just excited to be here. Uh, and she was a hospital birth. All righty. And Don Thompson is our expert, but Don, you're also a mama. So tell us a little bit about yourself. 
I am. I am a mother of six. Uh, uh, four out of the six were breastfed, two exclusively for, well, gosh, my, if it was up to my six-year-old, he'd still be nursing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's my youngest and, uh, they, my age range for children is age 23 to six. That's so amazing. big, 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 big gap, um, between all of my children, but I had four and then I had two really. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, welcome. And for me, so I have four kids and I had mine boom, 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 boom. I think I did five booms. It really should just be boom, 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 boom. <laughs> but they were all born within a five-year time span. And yes, I do have a set of twins in there. So they are my youngest. I'm still breastfeeding them. They're identical girls. They're two and a half. And I have, but I have done everything when it comes to breastfeeding. I had to exclusively pump with my girls when they were first born. My girls passed that work, exclusively breastfed, usually tandem. And I've used formula. I have, uh, I've donated milk. I've accept donated breast milk. I mean, I've, I've pretty much done everything that you can do with this. So, all right. Well, ladies, thanks for joining us. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. <coughs> Sounds familiar. <coughs> If your baby is going through another bout of bad diaper rash, then you need to give Dr. Mom Butt Balm a try. It was created by a mom who's also a doctor. When my kids were little, I remember using this thick, goopy cream to help soothe their sensitive skin. Ugh, it was so difficult to wipe off. Not with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. You only need a small amount, and it's really easy to apply and remove. It's also free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Look for it on Amazon and Walmart.com. So before we dive into our conversation today, we're doing a segment called Mama Hack. So if you listen to the boob group in the past, you know this is one of my favorite segments because it was created by our listeners. You started sending us these awesome tips when it came to breastfeeding and pumping for your babies and they, 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 these little nuggets that I think is just really great to share with other moms, these little hacks. And so I thought we need to create a segment with this, right? So now you guys can send us your tips and we'll put it on the show. And this tip today comes from Kristen. And I just thought that this was really important. It's a very simple tip, but I think we don't hear this enough. At least I didn't hear this enough when I was starting to breastfeed my babies and it put a lot of pressure on me. So I love what she has to say here. She says, it's not the end of the world if you don't pump enough. And she says, I stressed way too much about this. Having to supplement with formula is not the end of the world or the end of breastfeeding. Like I said, I think that's a very simple concept, but I think we have a tendency to get wrapped up so much, especially if we're so intent on breastfeeding that, you know, that it's an all or nothing thing and that's not necessarily the case. And so, and obviously the more we stress about it, the more impacts our milk supply, the more, you know, we don't have the letdowns we want to have when we're breastfeeding. And so I just thought it was a really good tip to keep in mind is all you fearless pumpers are out there, you know, or, or just, you know, trying to breastfeed too, that it's okay. You know, it's not all or nothing. So Kristen, thanks so much for sending this in. If you guys have a mama hack that you want 
for us to share with our audience, please let us know. You can email us through the website. Also, you can send a voicemail through the website, which is great because then you can actually give your tip yourself and we'll just include that on a future episode. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Today we're talking about evidence-based information, what that exactly means. And Don Thompson is our expert. You met her earlier. She's a doula and the founder of improvingbirth.org, whose mission is to bring respectful evidence-based care to childbirth. So Don, welcome to the Boop Group. I think this is the first time we've had you on the Boop Group. We've had yeah. you on, I think, Preggy Pals and maybe even our newer show, Newbies and Parent Savers, maybe. I don't know. But I think this is the first time for the Boop Group. So welcome. It is. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about what evidence-based means? It's a combination of things, really. What it is, is a combination of clinical expertise and or practice, along with best research. But in addition to that, which is the part that a lot of people miss, is that it also takes into account patient values. So it's all three, should be, it should be all three things put together. It sounds complicated. Is it complicated? Well, I mean, I think not really. I mean, the reality is, is that most of what we get now in maternity care is kind of this umbrella that everyone falls under. And it doesn't really take into account that what the patient desires should be part of the process. Okay. Real quick, I wanted to pull the, the other moms on the conversation. Moms, have you heard of this term evidence-based information or what have you heard? Graham? You know what? I hadn't until you came up with the the topic. Yeah, the topic. <laughs> and I actually stayed away from Google this time so that I could just be learning while I'm here. Oh, good. Good. I don't usually and- do that. <laughs> <laughs> you usually consult with Dr. Yeah, Google I do. and everything. Um, and Alicia, having you know just had a baby and gone through all the maternity care and everything, had you heard of evidence-based care information practice before? Um, I'm really kind of in the same boat as Graham. I hadn't really heard of it specifically. I mean, I, I guess uh, with the term, it kind of seems a little bit self-explanatory, but as far as like the bigger picture and what it really means as far as making educated choices um, in this day and age. Uh, I hadn't really done a whole lot in regards to that yet. No. Don, are you surprised? Are you surprised by that? I'm not. I'm not at all, actually. I mean, because I didn't know any of this stuff until I started doing what I do, right? And when you become a doula and you start working within the system, because that's exactly what it is. It's a system. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, the patient is often lost in the system. And I think what a lot of people don't know is that it takes an average in obstetrics of 17 years for evidence to become practice. Wow. One of the things that I use as an example is a huge example. The fact that we've known for over 30 years that episiotomy causes the harm that it was developed to prevent. And we've known this for 17 years, and yet there are still providers around the country doing them every single day. Why the lag time? I mean, it's not technology. It's not like we can't get them the information. What's going on here? (laughs) That's a very good, you know, that's the question of the day, really. Um, (laughs) 
because there's so many other things that feed into practice. It's not just what the evidence says. Unfortunately, many of the decisions that are made by a provider in childbirth are based on convenience. They're based on liability concerns and financial concerns before what's best for moms and babies, unfortunately. Yeah. That that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because I know a lot of places, I mean, they kind of have to look at their bottom line a little bit. I mean, I understand how finances can kind of, and convenience and stuff can play into it. I mean, you can't go bankrupt, right? But there has right. to be some sort of common ground here, right? Yeah, I mean, and there's providers out there that are doing it well. So we know it's possible. But really, it's a the biggest concern and the biggest thing that prevents us from receiving evidence-based care is liability concerns. And what we know now, though, is that liability concerns are actually most, most of it is perceived liability risk. The chances that a doctor gets sued actually is very, very slim, but it drives all the policy. It drives, you know, much of the policies in hospitals are being by, made by lawyers, not by the people practicing at all. It's so sad. It, it's so <laughs> sad. It's so sad. And it, but it's just the reality of where we live and, you know, just in the time that we live in. So the opposite then of evidence-based care is what we're calling routine care. Can you tell us a little bit? I know we've kind of been chatting about it, but what is it? What's the danger of routine care? Well, it just puts everybody under the same umbrella, right? There's no individualized situation. So for instance, if you are diagnosed with gestational diabetes, mm -hmm. there is a list of guidelines that providers often follow without really looking at what's going on with that mother. So if a mom, the, the risk is a big baby, right? With gestational diabetes. Right. But there's lots of women who control their diabetes throughout the entire pregnancy and have normal sized babies. And yet they're still being told they have to do an induction at 39 weeks because there's a risk of this huge baby. But they're not looking at the fact that this woman has controlled her diabetes the entire time. And there's no reason for her to go through that induction, medically speaking, and that, you know, realistically, she should just be allowed to go through the pregnancy as normal. But that's be routine care. She falls under the routine care that, that happens because it's so complicated, right? It just goes, goes into so many different levels. But there's then that risk is if they didn't do the induction at 39 weeks and there was a shoulder dystocia and the baby got hurt in any way, then the parents could sue the doctor. And, you know, like it, it just it's just this domino effect all the time. But that's a, a really good example of what routine care looks like. There's this list of guidelines that everybody follows for everyone and there's no individualized care. I feel like it's just being driven by fear. That's the thing that just keeps coming back into my head. Yeah, 100%. Oh, my goodness. And couldn't mm -hmm. a lot of that be mitigated by just talking to the mom or mom and dad or mom and mom or whatever, you know, could for sure in the example that you just gave. Okay, so mom has gestational diabetes. Talk to mom and say, okay, now, this is what we would normally do. Do you want to try? What do you want to try? Here are the risks. Here's what we know so far. And talk to the mom. And if mom chooses the routine care, if mom chooses, you know, what she thinks is the safest thing, great. And if mom chooses, no, I've been doing this on my own. And, you know, let's see uh, actually how big the baby is and make a decision off of that. Then how do they sue afterwards if they were educated and they were informed and they were empowered to make that choice. 
I would think that the incidence of lawsuits would go down. Significantly. I mean, I, th- I think that we know that for sure. But putting into practice when providers only have an ad- average of six minutes per patient, it's a problem. It's why I, sa- I said a system because it's, it's more of a systematic problem. This isn't necessarily a problem with the providers, although there are troublesome providers, don't get me wrong, but it's an entire system that's a ch- it's the challenge. So how is all this treated here in the U.S.? I, I know you've been working, you know, and, and, and pushing this forward for a while. I mean, how is it being perceived? Are we making a, a difference here in the U.S.? Are people listening? Are they starting to question this idea of routine care? They definitely are. We're de- we're seeing more and more women educating themselves and putting together their birth preferences. We've seen now for the third year in a row, the cesarean rate go down, although it's a minuscule. Uh, it's a very small amount. Um, and some of the VBAC rates are finally starting to climb, although those are dismal uh, in comparison to what they should and could be. But the problem is, is that when you challenge a provider oftentimes in these scenarios and saying like, I don't want routine care. I want, this is what I want. Unfortunately, what happens when you are bucking that system, a lot of times ego is is really unfortunately involved. And it winds up being like women are insulting the system, right? Like, oh, we know better. We know what's best for you. Don't go do Dr. Google, exactly what you said earlier about that, because there's there's definitely an eye roll that happens when women come in with their birth plans. And it's really, it's an unfortunate thought process. But we know that there's great doctors who are doing it and doing it successfully. So um, we need more of them and more providers willing to see where they can improve their practices. So if moms are listening to this and are like, this sounds like a good idea, I believe in the whole concept of, you know, evidence-based information and practice, but how do they even go about trying to find a provider that would be more open to this? It's not like people are putting on their site the seal of approval, right? That says I'm evidence-based. Like, how how do they know? We are working on that, actually. That's, uh, we'll we'll, we'll talk about that. But, um, you know, the best thing, in, in my opinion, that you can do is look to the birth professionals in your community, the doulas, the childbirth educators, even the yoga and prenatal yoga instructors will know who the good providers in town are. That's where you should start, I, I believe, is start there with those people because they'll tell you where to go. But otherwise, it's impossible. There's zero transparency. And in fact, most providers, when you ask them what their cesarean rate is or what their induction rate is, they have no idea. Really? Yeah, really. They don't have any idea. They don't track it for themselves. The hospital will track it, but the hospital um, is there to protect the provider. They're not there to protect the consumer, unfortunately. And so Consumer Reports just did this whole thing over the last six months about um, cesarean rates around the country. And they finally made cesarean rates in hospitals all over uh, available publicly. And uh, it's been a big eye opener. And a lot of hospitals are scrambling to change that. I'm assuming the rates are really high. Is that the they problem? Are. They're increasing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some hospitals are as high as 50%. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, and do, do they track it according to like first baby, second baby, anything like that? Or All the numbers that they did, um, statistics for the consumer uh-huh. reports, was first-time low-risk moms. <gasps> oh, Wait, my goodness. first-time low-risk moms? Yeah, so first-time low-risk moms. this is moms. not emergency. No. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
And I think it's really important for people to understand that the majority of the emergencies that happen in childbirth are caused by what we're doing to mothers when they're in labor instead of allowing the process to happen. But that's that's like a whole nother discussion, right? Right, right. Totally. Okay. All right. So let's take a quick break. We've been chatting for a while. When we come back, we're going to talk more about evidence-based maternity and labor delivery practice. And then how does all this impact breastfeeding, right? So we'll be right back. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion about the term evidence-based. What does it mean? And how do we make sense of this for moms out there who want to seek practitioners that are embracing this concept? So Don Thompson of ImprovingBirth.org is our expert. So Don, a big general question here, but, you know, we've been talking, you know, about how, you know, maternity care, labor and delivery, all these, all these things, it obviously impacts breastfeeding. What, what are we seeing here? How are we seeing this impact breastfeeding? Well, one of the things we're talking about is routine care. And I'll just use this as an example because it's what affects breastfeeding the most. And a lot of women have no idea that this is what was the big obstacle that they faced postpartum. And that is IV fluids. What we're doing when we give mom IV fluids is we're flooding her tissues with, with, uh, with fluid. And it takes an average of three to five days for that to come off the body. And imagine, right, I mean, there's there's women who go in for an induction and they get on IV fluids from the get-go, from the minute they walk into the hospital until the minute their baby's born. And a lot of times these inductions last two and three days. So now their body's been just overly saturated and then your milk comes in and so is all that fluid in your tissues. So now engorgement is significantly a problem. And it also makes it very difficult for your new baby to latch on because your breasts are so engorged. So just that one routine affects breastfeeding for everyone if you're having IV fluids. Yeah. So I was just going to say, like for moms that maybe forget, you know, what it was like to to get all those fluids, like what is the routine then? You get it immediately when you're admitted. And I mean, what's the point of the fluid? What is the fluid, first of all? What is it that's going through you? It's saline. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just water essentially. But, you know, there's a lot of research out there saying that we should not be doing IV fluids. But again, here's that same thing that goes in. We've known this now for multiple years, and it takes a very long time for that to actually enter into the practice and or stop practicing it. Well, what was the original thought process of why we needed it, though? It doesn't really make a lot of sense from the beginning for me. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't me either. But I, you know, I can't, I don't know the history of it to be honest with okay. you. But I mean, I know that they require it bef- that you're well hydrated before they do an epidural because it can cause your blood pressure issues and things like that. And, and when most women are having, um, getting pain medication of some sort, you know, they want them to be well hydrated so you don't have other complications. So if we were all just well hydrated, it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> so drink your water. Yeah, couldn't people? they just say, we're not doing this until you've had this amount of water and- 
instead of the IV? Well, it no, it takes longer. Like the way that it through the IV, it you know it it, it saturates the the systems quicker. Oh, okay. You drinking, it's it's different. Like you know, it's got to go through your whole digestive system in order to get to your tissues and all that stuff. So takes a lot longer. Yeah. This is why you're the expert. And I'm mm-hmm. just- <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I, I remember when I was giving birth, when I was in labor with my first son and I really wanted an epidural. I'm just not a big fan of pain and I just really wanted an epidural. And so I remember I was admitted and all this stuff is going on and they're having me sign all these papers and stuff when I'm like having these, my, my contractions, I have a history of like contractions, just like going like full speed really quickly. And I have no breaks in between and it'll just last for hours and hours and hours. So I was just in an enormous amount of pain. And I remember them putting IVs in me and saying, we have to get through this. We have to, you know, you got to have X amount of bags or I don't, I don't even know what they were saying. A, a certain amount of fluid had to go through my system before they would give me this epidural. And I remember being so frustrated because I was just like, people, I am in so much pain. You have to give this to me as quickly as possible. So I know what you're talking about there because I have some personal experience with that. Yeah. Is there anything else that we're seeing? And if not, Graham, we need to make sure that uh, that we share your story too. So anything else though, before we, we move on to the next topic, as far as things that are impacting breastfeeding, anything that you're seeing? Oh, the other things that we see is how our decisions in early labor can affect the duration of the labor and then, you know, how it might end in a cesarean which then, and I guess this isn't so much about the impact of breastfeeding as much as it is about the gut flora and establishing the gut flora and and how important then breastfeeding is if you've had a cesarean. But in addition to that, having a cesarean makes breastfeeding in general very difficult from, you know, just having pressure of the baby on the incision and things like that. And much of routine care. A, a lot of people don't understand that one in three women is now giving birth via major abdominal surgery as an average across the country. And some hospitals, like we are talking about more than others. So when when you're talking about one in three, and that also means, you know, 40%, 42% of first-time moms are being induced um, with artificial drugs and how that in, impacts the fluid that you're receiving and impact that, I mean, you know, it's like the whole thing as a whole in, affects breastfeeding. All right. So yeah. So Graham, we need to share your story. Okay. So I had an emergency C-section with my son. And then um, because of some scar tissue and many, many other reasons, I ended up having a scheduled C-section with my daughter. Both of them have had what I think of as very serious digestive issues. Um, My son was on probiotics and I was on a really restricted diet and eventually I just couldn't do it anymore with the breastfeeding and pumping and the diet. I, it, it was it was too much for me, so we switched him to formula, um, and of course he had to go on the really pre-broken down, really specialized, most expensive, of course, um, formula. And now with my daughter, I'm exclusively breastfeeding, but she has milk soy protein intolerance. She's not allergic to anything, but she is severely intol- intolerant of a lot of foods. I've got a list, <laughs> and we don't ever know about that, of course until I have already eaten the food and she's already in pain. It's not a thing that we really test, you know, a seven month old baby for. So just, just finding out about all of these foods and all of these issues and being on this diet, um, is, 
it's rough, quite honestly, and it, it makes breastfeeding really, really hard. And I'm not sure. I know it's one of the reasons I could not keep doing it the first time. If I didn't have so much support and the very specific work environment that I do, I don't know that I'd be able to do it this time either. All that being said, my pediatrician has told me multiple times that this is about the gut flora. This is about the bacteria that's in their stomachs. And I've been uh, referred to a wonderful pediatric nutritionist who is helping me with them. And I have a lot of support now. Is there something that could have been done before this that could have, is there anything that we know about that could have made this either not as much of a problem or not a problem at all? I know things might have been better if I could have delivered vaginally, but that just honestly was was not going to happen. We almost died the first time. So my C-section was very, very necessary. I know that's a long question. <laughs> I, got, I got where you're going, though, with it. So, I mean, I think, you know, there, it, this is all very fresh and new information, and there's definitely research going on about it currently. But we do know that vaginal walls secrete Uh, I don't know what it's called specifically, so I apologize, but essentially the baby comes through when it goes through the vagina and it then basically, you know, absorbs through the baby's skin, eyes, nose, ears, mouth, everything, and establishes the gut. When they don't go through the vagina, obviously, that then isn't present. The baby is not getting that and doesn't have their gut then established properly. There is some research going on that they are wiping and swiping the vagina and then essentially wiping the baby down with the vaginal secretions. And, and they're looking to see if that's going to work. You know, I don't think anybody really knows yet. It's, it's like I said, it's fairly new information, but so far the preliminary information is saying, yes, that it is, you know, it is going to work. Is this the same reason that they're saying now that not to wash babies? Yes, absolutely. Right after labor. Yeah, there's so much that goes on um, in those first 24 hours in particular for the baby based on, you know, um, everything that the the vernix that, you know, like all the things that are happening. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a lot of things in the process that we just keep messing with. And we have to stop messing with it, you know? I mean, like, there's even this whole, this whole, uh, this is like off topic a little bit, but whether or not we should be putting hats on newborns, there's this entire thing that stops happening, uh, the bonding between mom and baby the minute you put a hat on the baby, because, you know, moms are, are ingesting and smelling the top of the baby's head and falling in love with their babies and we mess it up. I kept taking it off. Don't yeah, see, yeah. I took <laughs> your intuition, your intuition was telling you. Yeah. She had the best hair and it was so soft mm-hmm. and perfect. Mm-hmm. And I just, oh, I and by the way, that also helps establish <laughs> breast milk, guys. It also helps all those oxytocins you know, release all these other things in your brain. We're just, we're just messing with the process way too much. So every opportunity that we can to get back to the normal natural process of childbirth is important. And that includes how we treat the babies when they come out. And I would think that that would be especially important for women like me who had to have that emergency C-section. So if you're already, if something has to happen, that's already messing stuff up, then I would think that after that, 
we want to try and get as quickly yes. back to what would have happened if the baby had been born vaginally. Absolutely. And I mean, it's so, it's why there's so much of the family-centered cesarean movement going on. Which we had and we loved. It was wonderful. It was amazing. Oh, the second oh, one was. Oh, and good. it it was absolutely amazing. Yeah. I, I We didn't watch the C-section, which was an option that I was like, no, that's okay. That's the line for me. Yeah. Um, in most cases, you can't see it because your belly's in the way of the, yeah, you know, like, I didn't want to catch a glimpse. I was cool. I was cool. I was fine. <laughs> but everything else, like I had her pretty much immediately um, right on me and got to, you know, snuggle and smell that little head. And, and it was amazing. Yeah. It's really, it, I mean, we've, we've proven that it's crucial. And I mean, if I could tell you how many stories I've heard of women who didn't see their babies to, you know, they saw them that split second when they lifted the baby up over the, over the thing and then didn't see them for two or three, four hours. Uh, it's, it's very detrimental from a relationship building and certainly from a breastfeeding standpoint. So I'm sure if you took Sunny, if you took a poll of the women who were separated from their babies uh, for long periods of time after birth, how their breastfeeding relationship was, I bet, I bet you'd find it was pretty severely impacted. Yeah, for sure. So I, I'm wondering, so we say that, you know, stuff is going on now. We're, we're reviewing stuff. We're testing stuff or whatever. At what point does something get classified as evidence-based? Like, I don't know if there's like a technical way. Like, is there a process for, okay, now enough stuff has been done. We consider that, that we have enough evidence to call it evidence-based. Is there is there a way to kind of define that at all? I mean, I'm you know, it means it's been published. It's been reviewed. It's been, you know, like those are the things that... Um, deem something viable about whether or not it's been reviewed and proven and, you know, so on and so forth. So it's going to take a little bit of time for sure, you know, to get all that. Uh, For sure. I mean, I think, you know, in my opinion, and it's why I started improving birth, it's the consumer that needs to put pressure on the system to make it happen sooner. Because we live in a day and age where you and I can go read the green journal just as easily as our provider can. And we can go onto Google and, and we're not just talking about blog mommy blogs, you know, we're talking about real well-read women who are going out there and reading the research, not just, you know, doing it because some mommy blogger or Facebook group said that she should. And, the reality is, is that we can put pressure on the system. You can take, you know, if you've got a provider who is saying to you, I need to induce you for a big baby. There's research out there that you can walk into your doctor's office and have a discussion and say, this is why I don't want to do an induction for a big baby. And this is the research that supports me not doing that. And I'm willing to take responsibility for my choices. And that's how we change things. That's how we change things is is being proactive, being empowered, taking control of our own care decisions, care making decisions, and also, though, taking responsibility for those decisions. All right. So last question as we wrap all this up is what can we do as moms, you know, to help increase the amount of support uh, for evidence based information? I mean, is there is there something we can be doing to help with this process and and kind of, you know, just bring it to light more? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, we're we're doing a lot of things at improving birth, but also sharing information, too. You know, I mean, we live in an era of social media where everything's available to us at the tip of our fingers. And, 
you know, sharing evidence-based information with our friends and our family who are going through the process now, you know, they're the ones pregnant and um, trying to give them as much information as possible so that they can make educated decisions about their care. Because far too often our care, like I said earlier, is is based on convenience. It's based on financial and liability concerns of someone else. And the reality is those concerns that providers have, that the system has, that the hospital has, the weight is being bared by women and their babies. And we we have to t- be proactive. And part of that process is sharing information, educating yourself, right? Because it's we can't continue to be like, oh, well, you know, he went to medical school. He knows better than me. He has a lot of or she has a lot of pressures on them that drive their decision making. And it's not, unfortunately, always what's best for you. And third is participate then in in things like our rally to improve birth, which is what we do every Labor Day across the country or the week of Labor Day. We have rallies all over the country to just get media attention about spreading the word about what evidence-based care looks like and what we should be expecting as mothers. All right. Well, ladies, thanks so much for being with us today and for sharing your experience. If you're a member of the Boob Group Club, then be sure to check out the bonus content for this episode. You heard Don just talk a little bit more about improving birth, and she's going to share a little bit more information about the efforts and how you guys can get involved, and that's all in our bonus content. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, Boob Group. So we have a comment from one of our listeners, and we love receiving mail from you guys. This was actually a comment posted to our Facebook page, and it was regarding our recent episode that we released called Breast Milk and Baby's Immune System. And this came from Suzanne Santorelli. And Suzanne writes, I have really enjoyed this podcast. Unfortunately, my breastfeeding journey is over for my daughter at 26 months old. I've enjoyed your podcast tremendously while I was breastfeeding my son and daughter, who are now five and two and a half. They were never sick when I was breastfeeding. My son had his first ear infection right after I stopped nursing at 18 months, and my daughter has not had one at all. They hardly ever get sick, only colds that they bounce back from. I strongly agree breast milk had a lot to do with it and getting their immune system up. Thanks again. I hope to return listening to your podcast soon. All right, Suzanne, thanks so much for this. And yeah, we couldn't agree more. Breast milk is so good for our babies in so many different ways. And we're so glad that your babies were healthy while you were breastfeeding. And you gave them such a great start on life. So awesome, mama. Okay, if you guys have comments for our shows or you just want to send us a note and say hi, we would love to hear from you. So head on over to our website at newmommymedia.com. Click on the contact link and type away. And you can also send us a voicemail. And that way we can put it on the show as well. And that number is 619-866-4775. Can't wait to hear from you. That wraps up our show for today. Thanks so much for listening to The Boob Group. Don't forget to check out our sister show, Preggy Pals, for expecting parents, newbies for newly postpartum moms, parent savers for moms and dads with toddlers, and twin talks for parents of multiples. This is The Boob Group, where moms know breast. This has been a new mommy media production. The information and material contained in this episode 
are presented for educational purposes only. Statements and opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those of New Mommy Media and should not be considered facts. While such information and materials are believed to be accurate, it is not intended to replace or substitute for professional medical advice or care and should not be used for diagnosing or treating health care problem or disease or prescribing any medication. If you have questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your baby, please seek assistance from a qualified health care provider. How would you like to have your own show on the New Mommy Media Network? We're expanding our lineup and looking for great content. If you're a business or organization interested in learning more about our co-branded podcasts, visit our website at newmommymedia.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, mamas, don't forget to check out Mighty Moms. It's our online community built for new moms just like you. Not only can you connect with other moms, but you can also join us backstage for special mom-only online events. And you'll also be notified when we're recording so you can join us as a special guest. Visit our website, newmommymedia.com, and click on the Mighty Moms banner. It's free. That's newmommymedia.com. See you there.